0: where are people going to get a chance to prove themselves? If so much of the work that they started off gets automated. So it's not just that people are going to lose their jobs. I think it's the people that have been told for years, it's like, you know, who's left holding the bag right now on student loan debt, black people who were told this is the way to economic success. You have to get a degree. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I got to go get a degree. So I'm going to take out these loans. And then all of a sudden they get out of school and it's like, oh, that degree is not going to get you a job doing entry-level coding.
1: Will Reynolds, thanks for coming on the show today, man. I'm really excited to have you. And uh, so, you know, you're the founder of Seer Interactive, uh, you know, one of the top SEO companies in the, in the country, maybe the world. I don't know where you guys uh, stack, but, you know, your name's all over the place. I see it everywhere. Uh, you're like uh, a super interesting personality in the SEO space. You do a lot of content. And I am super interested today in hearing what your thoughts are with AI and how it's going to impact search.
0: Let's talk about it.
1: Yeah, so let's dive in. What's uh, you know, where 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 do we even start on this one? Like where for, you know, a layperson in, you know, in the digital world that's not super into the the nitty-gritty of SEO, where where do you even start like understanding the impacts of this stuff?
0: I think everybody's 101 is content production. I think that's really boring. I think that's table stakes, but I think that's where most people are entree is. Like, "Oh, wait. I got all this content I'm supposed to produce, and this AI stuff can help me to produce higher quality stuff, faster, potentially at a lower cost. I think that's where most people's entree is.
1: It's like spitting out articles on ChatGPT, basically, is what you're saying.
0: I think most people are like, wait, because, you know, you anything that's not tactile is, is hard for people to understand. So once you get people in it and you're like, oh, I've got this backlog of articles. I can't find good writers. I'm constantly correcting them. That takes up my time. So to produce an article is now X. And now I can have my top writer basically edit these things for me and crank it out at a this faster pace. And where I think most SEO people fall off is they stop there. Instead, you want to attach it to the business model. Okay, I told you to write all this content six months ago. If it takes you six months to write the first one, Customers didn't stop searching. So all that time that we lost, that we couldn't produce, cost you X. So every time I can move that up a bit, we're gaining economic value, right? Where most people are like, oh, we can automate it and make it cheaper. It's like, no, there's economic value that's also being lost when you're not in the game of ranking, right?
1: So that's interesting. So that's that's different. Like when I first started saying like seo and how it's going to impact or sorry uh, ai and how it's going to impact seo and search i was thinking more about how you know seo and search won't be like the 10 links on a page anymore and uh like that that was where my head went but before we go there let's 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 dig into what you're talking about here a little bit uh because i have thought about that too is like using ai agents you know using uh you know, kind of training, training LLMs on your own content, your industry and your business to generate content. And I've heard conflicting things. I've, I've heard people say like, oh, Google already, they already know they, like, they can tell the signature of, of AI generated content versus human content. You're going to get banned if you like use programmatic AI content. I've heard some people say that. I've heard other people say, oh, Google doesn't have a choice. They have to lean into it and they're just going to like accept it. And obviously we're talking about Google because they're the big gorilla in search. There's other search engines. You know, there's Bing, there's, you know, Microsoft Bing. There's, you know, uh, out our way, Gabe uh, from DuckDuckGo. So there's like other search engines out there as well. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, are these search engines going to ban AI content? And can they even tell?
0: All right. So let's be provocative. Because otherwise, why are we here? Right? If if I give you 50-50 on everything, you're like, Get out I of it. I want here, the opinions,
1: right? man. Tell tell me your, like your real thoughts I, here. I,
0: I, I think if you think this content is gonna get you banned on Google, the 50-50 is all about and how you use it. But if you're not using it because you're afraid you're gonna get banned, I think you're an idiot. Like Like, if you write to Google, write me an article on this random topic and you just copy and paste it and put it in, well then I think you're kind of a moron for doing that anyway, right? You're not trying to help the customer. Yeah right? You're not trying to help the customer. You're trying to just execute content as fast as possible. And that has always been a race to the bottom. Oh, I got to execute these links as fast as possible. Race to the bottom. Get banned. Yeah, you could technically get banned for link building. But if you took some time to try to understand what are the right places to be? How do I create value? How do I build out valuable content people want to link to? Then getting links wasn't a bad thing. And I think that same nuance is here. But like if you're going to scare people into being like, Oh my God, if you use AI content, they're going to find out and ban you. It's like, well, probably not. Like, I don't think so. I I, I literally don't think so. They might scare you. Google's great at scaring people into not doing things that they haven't technologically figured out yet.
1: Yeah. Like what was right? that old, like those link farms, like Dmas or whatever people used to pay like a thousand bucks to be on these pages that were just basically like, you know, for like, they were just like juiced up pages for SEO.
0: Well, DMOZ didn't start like that. I mean, you had the Yahoo directory, right? And then you had, um, there, we wanted like an open source kind of Wikipedia version of, the, of what Yahoo had. So DMOZ was m- managed by moderators and whatnot, just like Wikipedia kind of was, and people like curated these sets of links. Once people realized that the DMOZ powered like 20 different search engines, there was an economic value to be captured there. And then you started seeing like a few road people being like, well, if you want to get into demons, you know, uh oh, I'm the moderator. You slide me some money on the side, I'll get you right in. Or otherwise you're in the queue for six months, right? So I think that kind of crap crept in a little bit, but no, I I honestly think um, like most things, there are two sides of it. Just like, think about the customer and there's a good chance you won't end up in the place that's going to get you banned. If you think about it from an SEO standpoint, well, then your natural set of optimizations are, how can I do this with as little work as possible, as fast as possible to give Google what they want? Well, then Google's going to be like, but if this isn't helping the customer, you're actually creating friction. And if you're creating friction, then I want you out. But it's not the AI that you're using. It's the way you're using the tool. Right.
1: Yeah. So let's let's do a hypothetical here. Uh, All right. Let's do it. Uh, on, on that, on that uh, note that you just kind of laid out there, you know, basically having having a good outcome for the user. Uh, regardless of how you get there, but having a good outcome for the user with your content, with your site structure. Let's imagine that like, you know, we'll say WordPress. WordPress is easy to to work with and program. So let's say we build like this big LLM that's trained on a certain industry. Uh, Let's just say the industry is like uh, just, you know, we'll say it's like restaurant reviews or something or, you know, restaurant, I don't know, restaurant content. I don't know, something like that. And uh, we basically take this LLM and we just like index the internet and then run it through the LLM, programmatically generate, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages in a somewhat organic way, maybe like randomly dripping out three or four a day or five or 10 a day for, you know, years. And, uh, you know, it's well-written content. It, you, you know, it's helpful to users, but it's like just, you know, some some developer spent like two months just getting it up and running and then just like let it just go on like a churn path for, you know, for years to come. And it's just like automated. It's totally human list but it like actually has a good result to the humans that are using it is that do you think that's a good strategy
0: it depends it on a good what, strategy it depends on what you're optimizing for if you're like yo i gotta pay my bills this year it's a great strategy if you're like yo i gotta start saving for my kids college fund and this is the way i'm gonna do it but my kids too so i need this strategy to work 18 years from now it's probably it's probably a bad strategy
1: right? You're saying because it's short-sighted, like it's gray hat. is kind of what you're saying.
0: It's not even that it's gray hat. It's just that like, I think that um, somebody else with higher domain authority is going to copy you. So in a world where everybody can basically, now training in LLM is interesting because what you're also saying is I have now added unique information into what somebody else probably can't produce. So therefore your runway might be longer than the idiot who goes in and just types in some basic stuff in a chat GPT. So it's a longer runway. You know what has a really long runway? Fucking brands. Yeah. Plans have the longest yeah. runway of all. So, if I, so I like to build tools to catch people doing stuff like that, right? And be like, oh my God, these guys are producing, they went from producing no content to this much. Oh, four rollout every other week. Like I have the ability to see that, right? So then I'm going to say, every week, show me how many they produced, how long does it take for them to rank. And I go to my client who's a bigger domain authority and go, we should just copy what they did. And then now you're trying to compete with me on your great content that you built with your LLM. But I have, I'm working with Yelp. So therefore, I'm like, yo, Yelp, these guys are great, man. I just saw what they've done. I've been tracking them for 12 months while you're making money. And it's like, that's a great idea. These pages are sticking in the index. But who's Google going to rather rank for that same exact content or the same exact approach? Yelp, for sure. Or affiliate person that created a site that's helping to sell off like DoorDash affiliates like or whatever. Like the minute we can capture who's doing what at scale and then look for a higher domain authority client to sell it to, well, we already see it. First result of Google, like look who's creating all this fake content. It's the Red Ventures model, right? We're gonna buy a brand, CNET, WebMD, and then we're gonna crank content out on it.
1: And they're gonna crush, yeah, because they have they have the the, the domain authority and the history. Yeah, yeah they're gonna totally- And crush. they're
0: going to crush. So this model's already been proven. Get a big brand. Google's not gonna probably ban that brand. Um, now, other thing that, that that companies like that do is they'll have like five different websites they'll have the big flagship brand that they're least aggressive on. And then they'll have the second less, the third less, the fourth less. So they're capturing when Google freaking hits us on the smaller sites. Oh Oh, yeah,
1: so they do their more experimental stuff or or they just know like if the rollout hits them first on the smaller ones. Yeah, so smart. Oh,
0: we launched this shit. It got torched in Google in six months. Don't do it on the big brand. Oh, this thing's been rolling for two years. It's probably safe to roll up to the big brand. So now they're not going to be hit with the big money. We took this little small affiliate that we just bought their site for a hundred grand, but we spent fifteen million on CNET. We're going to take that hundred grand site. We're going to buy five of those and try different aggressiveness of And tactics. It's like a
1: it's like a canary in the coal mine.
0: One thousand percent, because they don't want to risk the fifteen million dollar thing. They want to risk the hundred thousand dollar thing. So imagine if you buy five things that all cost you hundred grand. And you're testing all kinds of aggressive tactics on that to see which ones last, which ones don't last, how much you can dial it up, right? So this one's producing 100 pieces of content every week. This one's producing 30. This one's producing 10. This one's producing five. If the 100 captures the entire value of the universe of searches in six months and those rankings stick for three years, you're pretty safe. Or it could be a year, you know, internet changes fast. But it's like, like, yeah, so that's how I would see that. If I was consulting with a client and we caught somebody, doing what they were doing, I'd be like, okay, let's watch, see how long it lasts. Oh, it lasted for three months and Torch, we can't do that for you, it's gonna hurt your whole brand, right? Oh, it lasted for 12 months, maybe we can dial ours up a little bit, right? Oh, it lasted for 18 months, let's get more aggressive, right? So that's the way I would look at it.
1: That's such a golden nugget right there. That's That's beautiful, I love that. I wanna take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. Two things I want to come back to, uh, white hat and black hat. And then also I want to come back to, uh, cause we, we talked about that a little bit. I want to just make sure the users understand what that is. Uh, The other thing that was brand building, Uh, you talked about like the brand being a moat. I don't know if you've ever read, uh, I think it's zero to one by Peter Thiel. Uh, He has like this concept in that book of moats, like the moats you can have, and he goes around and talks about all the different moats. And he goes like, there's like a whole chapter on each one. And the one moat that he has that he doesn't really have any content on, he says, there's one moat called the brand moat. And I don't really understand that mode, so I'm not going to talk about it here. But there's lots of other books about that. And he said, uh, you know, one one company that really understands it is the uh, LVMH or whatever, the uh, Louis Vuitton. And, you know, uh, I, they have a huge conglomerate of, uh, of, you know, luxury brands. But he's like, they really understand the brand mode. So go read one of their books.
0: It's <laughs> a really good idea to read their stuff, right? Because at the end of the day, when you try to boil down what LVMH does, you're like, it's a freaking bag. Like, you didn't innovate the bag. Like it still has two straps and holds something. Why are people willing to pay three grand for a bag that does the same thing that a bag and it's a nice bag, a nice leather bag, whatever. I get that you want something that's going to last and it's got nice color. It's like, no, you're literally buying the fact that their spokesperson is X and that it is associated with this lifestyle you might want to live. Like that, to be able to create a moat on not creating any additional economic value, but you're creating mental value for people and how they're perceived.
1: It taps it really, into like our deepest human desires, like, the, like the, the desire to procreate, the desire to like belong to a community, the desire to have power, like it taps into those deepest human desires.
0: Yeah, like if you think about it, right, like I would say eight, nine years ago when I found out for the first time that the Michelin star, you know, review was basically written by a tire company. Right. You're like, so it's interesting that a company that makes rubber tires that go on the road is now something that you brag about to your friends of like the, oh, it was a two star Michelin. It's like you like you just allowed a company that makes tires to become that is the least sexy, braggy thing to talk about. That company has now made you go and be like, oh, my God, it's Michelin star. It's like, you know, they make fucking tires, right? Again, like Imagine if it was whatever. Jiffy
1: Lube, like, uh, oh, we got we got a three Jiffy Lube star.
0: Facts, <laughs> bro. Right. So um, I know. but to, I know you said you wanted to talk about AI and its threats to as search in the way people get answers. So I want to make sure we have time to get to that, too, because I have, you know, I think that's another area we can totally banter back.
1: And forth. Yeah, just do a quick uh, just so people understand. I don't know how many people listening are like, you know, deep in the SEO space. So uh, just do a quick like the difference between white hat and black hat, because I think that might could that might be a thread here a little bit.
0: Yeah, so I don't really use that language, right? I just use aggressiveness, right? So, um, you know, if the more aggressive you get when you're doing search strategy, the more you could run afoul of what Google says they want you to do. And that can sometimes be considered black hat, right? It's like, it's the wrong thing to kind of do. And then white hat being like, I follow all of Google's rules. And the truth is, is that I wrote a blog post about this, must've been 12 years ago, um, where I was like, when you follow Google's rules and don't rank, what are you left with? Because now your clients are saying to you, you're a snake oil salesman. You told me that, that you were gonna help me to rank better on Google. And I'm like, well, I'm following all of Google's rules, but oftentimes Google's rules are not how to actually rank on Google entirely. So I think every consultant needs to understand the risk tolerance of the organizations they're working in. So notice even the questions that I'm going back to you at. Do you need this site to last you for 18 months because you just got to pay off the credit card bill? Or do you need to last for 18 years because you got to pay for kids' education? And if this is the only way you're going to pay for those two outcomes, you might want to be a little more to the gray because you need this thing to last. You need to go more gray-white because it's got to last for 18 years to put your kid through school. But if you're like, man, I'm just trying to buy extra tires for my car, then like, go ahead and spike that because you got to know what you're optimizing for in the outcome. So if the outcome is long term, you probably should stay more to the white side. Um, and if the outcome, the outcome is like, yo, like I'll just build a site. If it's gone three months from now, I'm fine. If it lasts for three years, I'm fine. But I'm gonna be super aggressive about it. Then you just are waking up every day knowing that all your hard work could go to nil, right? So think. I'd uh, so the easy way for me to describe it is the easier it is to do at scale. Usually, the more you're like, "Wait, I can now build 10,000 pages instantly." If you're thinking that way when you look at ChatGPT, you're probably going into more of a an area that could get you into some trouble. If you're thinking, "Ooh, I could get my editorial staff to use this to ideate so they can come up with better answers," you're probably staying more to the okay side.
1: Yeah, and that's that's so interesting because there's um yeah I I like I like the aggressiveness better than because like you know if you just say it's like either good or bad like that's you know like I think that like white hat, black hat implies that it's like either good or bad. Whereas like, I I think it's a spectrum like there's, there's so much more to it, like it, everything in life. But I think there's so much more to it than just, are you following Google's guidance or not? Because everyone's kind of like pushing the boundaries, right? There's everyone's trying to kind of figure out how to, uh, you know, optimize as much as they can and get as as aggressive as they can without you know, doing stuff that's just completely deceitful. So uh, it's an interesting, you know, spectrum, you know, kind of way to think about it. Uh, But let's, let's go on, let's do, uh, let's do SEO, uh, like the actual SERPs themselves, like the landscape of what users will interact with in the future. And obviously, like the big topic of conversation right now is that Google is going to cannibalize their cash cow, which is this Google ads, by uh, replacing uh the the 10 links like the the format that you know has been searched for the entire life cycle the the entire history of search is that you input a query you get 10 links and uh that paradigm is uh you know kind of ripe right now to completely flip on its head with this new interactive uh agent model
0: yeah somebody dropped this on me and i don't know who to credit so apologies, cause you know, SEO people get all tight about, that was my idea. Um, <laughs> so somebody said something to me. It's like this concept of disrupting the cash cows. So let's focus on that. One Satya Nadella at Bing has basically publicly been like, I got a chance. So imagine being in second place for like 20 years and you finally have caught up close enough to have a chance to catch the person that's been in front of you for 20 years of a race you've been running millions of times a day, every day, every month, he finally is like, yo, he's like, I make money on LinkedIn, on Office, on Azure. He's like, I make money in so many other places. I will just keep my thumb on their freaking necks at Google by trying to make my experience. He's, like, he's, he's pretty much said, I'm going to cannibalize the entire freaking experience on Bing. Let's see if he's really willing to buck up with that. But he's saying like, I finally have a chance to get this person who's been ahead of me for 20 years. And every 2 or 3% of market share I can take from them is worth billions of dollars, but also it's frustration for them. So like, the more Bing is like, we're not going to put any ads in, in, in our chat search. We don't think it's the right thing. The more people are going to use it because people technically don't want ads, right? That puts a lot of pressure on Google to match that experience, right? So Satya's already said, like, that's where I'm going, right? Now, whether or not he really shows up with the receipts will be another thing, but he's already said that publicly. So you're like, okay, it's on. Now Google and somebody said to me, they're like, what I'm tracking is which queries bring up four paid ads? Cause it's not 10 blue links in the traditional sense. They look at it through the lens of who's showing four ads because the ones that show four ads in their opinion were the ones where Google makes the most money. That's why they're showing more ads and putting more in the auction. So if you were to actually look at will Google harm their cash cow the the percentage by which Google will harm their cash cow is directly related to how many ads show up above the 10 blue links. So what percentage of my search terms don't trigger any ads? Google can go SGE all day on that, right? Or bad ads. Google can go SGE all day on that and not really hurt the cash cow. What's going to hurt the cash cow is when somebody Googles something and the first four ads that you don't know are ads are all ads, and you click on the first one, they pay Google. Click on the second one, and they pay Google. Click on the third one, and they pay Google. And there's so much competition there, they're all bidding each other up. That's probably where it'd be interesting to take Google's revenue from paid search and say, what percentage of that revenue comes on places where there's four ads, three ads, two ads, one ad, and no ad? right? And now you start to have a more nuanced conversation around like, ooh, I think the last thing Google's going to want to put SGE on is where there are four ads because that's four opportunities to get people to click. It's four, four more advertisers say I got to be higher than them because I got to hit my numbers this quarter. Pay Google more, right? Whereas the one where there's only one ad showing up or the one where there's only two ads showing up, that could be less disruptive. So that's my very nuanced take on the disruption, but it's not just like, oh, it's SGE. And oh, it's going to, it's going to disrupt Google. It's like, well, it's only going to disrupt Google where they make the most money. What kind of SERP do they make the most money on? It's probably the ones that have um, e-com ads. It's the one that has like four, ads. So I'm trying to get good at calculating the number of ads. What kind of search terms trigger consistently four ads in my database? And I'm like, those are the ones that are probably the least likely to be disrupted because they're going to hurt Google too much. Which ones are only showing one ad each time I get it? Those are the ones that that might go away. And then trying to consult my clients on that.
1: Wow. That's, that is the best way I've heard it laid out so far. Uh, Thanks for that. That's, that's like, you know, that's the second or third massive gold nugget you've dropped here but uh let's break that down for a second so uh yeah like if you if you know google gets so many queries per day i I don't know what the number is but it's probably you know it's at least tens or hundreds of millions if it's not you know maybe billions it's billions per day
0: i i wouldn't surprise me
1: yeah it's it's a lot so uh You know, if someone Googles like what to do for a sprained ankle or even like, you know, what was the score of the Phillies game yesterday? Like those are probably low revenue queries, I would guess. But if somebody Googles like, you know, what intellectual property lawyer should I hire in Philadelphia? That's probably like they probably make hundreds of dollars every time someone searches that. You're you're uh, Yeah, so I hear what you're saying. Like they're going to disrupt like the what was the Phillies score yesterday. Because uh, they're,
0: they're already not monetizing it, right? So like, and, it's
1: all, and it's probably, that they probably get way more of that, like that kind of search.
0: So like for me, now this is also, I'm biased. So I tend to think of everything through this lens of like, how can I aggregate the data to make a better answer? And it's something that, Brian, want you and anybody who listens to this podcast, I want them to start thinking of is like, people are pontificating on shit and we have no idea. Like, so my focus is going to be on what data can I get? So I can consult with my clients at an individual level. Right, so like, how's how's this going to change for me? I'm like, I need to bring all the data together because what you see is there's a there's a there's a wide range of like the best practice against like what isn't what where your clients fall. So, um, Dr. Pete dropped this on me, and something that I do is I take a couple million queries um, every month, and then I look at what percent, and then I take each client is a row, and then I say, um, you know, uh, what percentage of their of their search terms. Are where there's an answer box, and that came from Doctor P, right? He he kind of hit me to that, and I'm like, right. So if the percentage of terms that are answer boxes,
1: just real right, quick, and describe the answer five, box so listeners know ah, what that okay.
0: is. Okay, so um, what's a what's the Philly score? Like you know, um, uh, it, it's it's something where there's a singular answer, like what day is Valentine's Day? Um, anything that's got like an answer that you don't have to visit the website on are probably the first ones to be disrupted, is my belief, right? Because Google's already comfortable not. Google's already comfortable answering that question without you having to go to the website, right? So if you start with the answer boxes and you run a couple of million of terms through that, you're like, okay, for each client, what percentage of your search terms triggered an answer box? Okay, like those are the ones that are probably gonna be first to go because Google's already not monetizing it. And they already believe that a singular answer could be the good enough answer for somebody to keep moving on. So Google's probably gonna start there. So then I look at what percentage of your search terms triggered an answer box And then I say, of those search terms, what percentage of your paid search spend is that? And what percentage of your conversions is that in paid? So now I'm able to say, hey, man, like it might be 20% of your queries, but it's 3% of your conversions, which means Google is showing some ads on these answer box kind of queries, but they're probably not at the top. They're probably on page two or three. And now I'm having an economic conversation with my client around saying, hey man, like, yes, like somebody's like, oh my God, like if it's answer boxes, I went and ran all the answer box queries and it's 30% of all your search terms. Oh, it's gonna be super disruptive. This is where I believe in the power of joining data. Because once you join paid data in, you're like, oh, wait a second, that's only 5% of your budget and it's only 2% of your conversions. And then if you really wanna be at the top of your game, at least this is how I define it, I'm gonna say to my client, at what interval is this disruptive enough? that for you, you would want to start taking action. Client goes, man, once this is 10% of my conversions, I don't care about search terms. I care about the economic value. Once 10% or more of my conversions are being affected by answer boxes, then I want to know that, 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 that and I'm going to take action. So then for us in our platform, we set up that alert at the individual client level. Hey, clients, we now have percentage of answer boxes combined with your paid data in this. For one client, they might be like, if it's 3%, I'm concerned. Great, so your account team will only get alerted when it's 3% or higher. And it's just tracking every month. And then once it hits, we know to automatically alert that team member. So now we're reducing the signal to the noise. Another client might be like, dude, that's 30% for me. Okay, cool. Like, we'll just wait until it hits 30% to have that conversation. We might say, are you sure you want to wait that long? But if they're like, yes, this is my strategy. I want to wait that long, then cool. So I like bringing the economic value into the conversation versus this many of your search terms triggered an answer box. But if it's not things that are converting for you, then then I'm talking about SEO shit, but I'm not talking about CEO shit. You know what I'm saying?
1: I love that. Yeah. CEO shit. Like that's, that's uh,
0: revenue like, profit.
1: What moves can share,
0: right? Like I yeah. pay my people in my ability to generate revenue growth, profit, things of that nature. That is the language of a CEO language of an SEO is 30% of your search terms. Okay. Well, how many of those search terms are driving me revenue? Are they my most profitable search terms? Are they driving me new customers? Are they taking market share? Oh, I got no idea. Get out of here with that SEO shit. Oh, and then the <laughs> SEOs go, I'm not getting invested in, right? Nothing's worse than somebody who blames somebody else for why they're not getting what they want out of somebody, right? That's the, oh, they won't invest in me. It's like, no, how about you flip that? Because you can't control what somebody invests in. What you can control is how do I best speak your language? So SEOs that are using ChatGPT the right way, in my opinion, are going, I'm getting ready to talk to a CEO. CEOs are typically most focused on things like ROI. This CEO, now that I've gotten to know them, you could scan all the fucking, um, all the 10Q reports. I've looked at, here's all their last quarterly reports. What do you think the top five things the CEO talks about that are related to economic value? Then you take your ranking report and say, here's my ranking report. Here's what I found in it. How would you translate what I see into the language that, an, that the CEO is talking about on his quarterly reports? And it'll it'll do the work for you and give you ideas on the way to talk to that person to get funded. Or you can go onto Twitter and say, like, execs don't get it, right? And then get 30 people saying, Yeah, you're right. I'm trying to slide out of that conversation and go, how can I use ChatGPT to help? Execs to get it, you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. So how, uh, you know, it' it, easier said than done in some cases to get all that data in a meaningful, useful way. How how do you what do you what what do you guys use? Do you do use like BigQuery and uh, like Google Data Studio, or how do you get like your Google Ads data, your Google Analytics data, your conversions data? Maybe you have like other tools that are you know doing things like A/B testing or something. Like how do you get all that data into
0: one place that's useful? So. The last part that you just said is the most critical part that is useful because technically what'll happen is there are tools out there you can buy for a thousand dollars a month. That'll say, oh, we'll bring in all your stuff. But then what it does is it doesn't do the hard work of joining it all together. So you can answer those kind of questions. So it's like, oh, here's a box for you that has all of your SEO data. And here's a box for you that has your paid. You're like, but I want to know how my SEO and my paid are connected. They're like, we don't do that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You paid $99 a month for this. We don't do that. So for us, you know, um, first got to ingest the data. Um, I mean, you could use supermetrics for that. Um, they have a bunch of connectors. You could use a lot of tools out there. Um, we use FiveTran. So once you ingest the data, you're like, I have the raw materials. It's very much like building a house, right? The person that cuts down the wood and then brings it to your house so they can build the framing is the lumber yard. But then when they drop the framing off, you don't say to them like, oh, you're also going to start to build the frame. They're like, no. We just do this part. So you have to find a strong vendor who can take the raw materials, the data, and consistently, with a high degree of confidence, drop them off at the site on the day and time they said they were. So then you can have the workers who turn the raw materials into value, the framing, there that day. So you need somebody who's consistent enough that I will drop it off at the right time so you can know, 99% confident, that you can start your team that day. So once they come and drop the raw materials off with like, for us, Fivetran, you then have to have engineers who basically go, this is the raw material. So technically I have the raw materials, but now I've got to turn that into value. That's all your transformation layer, which means now you've got to sit and talk to users on like, what kind of problems are you trying to solve? Right? And that's a different skill set. That's not engineering. That's your product people. And they're going, okay, what kind of problems are you trying to solve? And then you go, okay, so that's a problem you're trying to solve solve what's the economic value of solving that problem oh it's a million dollar problem great now i need to go back to my engineers they're not the people that dropped off the raw materials but they're the people who are supposed to take the raw materials and turn them into economic value for my analysts right so then that middle layer is all the transformation of how do i join this stuff together to turn it into value and then once the engineer goes i have now joined it all then you have a separate role that is an analyst and the analyst is like, I don't know how to join all this stuff and use SQL and, and all these crazy tools to cut the data up and to put it in the different tables and all that. That's not their job. Their job is to do the analysis. So they're like your interior designer. They're like, no, you got to get the stuff dropped off first and the framing built. And then I come in and start to work on like where to hang the picture. But don't talk to me yet because my skill set is best. And now that you've made it easy for me to hang stuff and you've put drywall up, well now my skills are best. And your analysts are the ones that do that part. And they might use Looker, they might use Power BI, they might use any tool they want. But like those are the three different parts. You gotta get somebody who can drop off the raw materials. For us, that's Five Fivetran. Then we've got a bunch of engineers that work on turning the raw materials into economic value. With the product team figuring out where we should put our efforts and time based on what customers want. And then once you get that, then you have analysts who go, now that all the raw materials have been dropped off, now that the framing's been built, we should probably start talking about where you want to hang the TV. Because wherever you want to hang the TV, I got to run wires to that. Right. But you got to know how to time those things. And the worst thing is, is when you go out and try to hire unicorns that can do all of them. It's very hard to find somebody that can get the data, but you can. You can find somebody who can be like, all right, I kind of can use supermetrics to drop this stuff in a Google sheet right? Um, And then I can kind of transform it and use some macros or whatever to kind of say, change this thing into this thing. Um, And then you're like, and I can analyze it because I'm just going to attach Data Studio to that. You can do that as a one-off. If you're trying to do that across 50, 100 clients, then you really need to bring in the big guns like a Spytran, a dev team with product managers and analysts, because you do not want your interior designer also running your cables you know, like and doing your framing. They technically could get a hammer, but if you're just kind of MVPing it, it's fine. But if you need to do this robustly and it's something the company's going to rely on to make decisions, you owe it to them to spend the money and the time to break it up and to get good at all those individual areas. If you're building an affiliate site, you could do that yourself though, and you'd probably be just fine.
1: Yeah, and I, I you gave a really great answer. I, I figured you would probably have some uh, interesting stuff to say about that. I've seen so many times people are just expecting you can just log into Google Analytics and it's all going to be there. Uh, no. it's, it's so much work to really get a great, uh, to really get a great analytics or BI system in place. And we, we have a, a mutual friend, I'm sure Bob Moore, uh, who came on this podcast, uh, you know, three, three months ago or something. Uh, and he's like a Philly data guy. He built a couple of data companies. Uh, you know, his first one was RJ metrics, which is now, uh, part of Adobe Magento. Uh, you know, but that like he built a whole company just doing what you're talking about, like building all these pipelines and, you know, the dashboarding piece and being able to make sense of the data. And even, you know, his platform was in one specific industry. That's how like niche and, you know, and, and vast, this, uh, this data world can be,
0: but. uh, One one second on that, Brian, um, since you brought Bob up, I think it's important to give that dude his flowers because we can look at the economic value that he's created for Philly, like on his own with what he's built, but then you got to remember Tristan, I think Handley, who built DBT Labs, which is a freaking unicorn over there and was started off as Fishtown Analytics, came from that. So I think if you also were to look at Bob's work here and then all the people that spun businesses off from Bob, you're like the economic value of what he sold to Magento that went on to Adobe is one thing, but the fact that we got a company worth two, like one and a half, 2 like one and a half, two billion. Like, yep. I could walk there in 10 minutes from here in Fishtown, like came from all the people that worked with Bob that he kind of brought up and let them run with stuff. So I also want to just give Bob his flowers on that because he deserves them for all that he also enabled other people in his companies to go and do on their own after their time at RJ was up.
1: I think that's the uh, that, that, that's the, the hallmark of a, you know, uh, an exceptional entrepreneurial culture. In a startup, when you have, you know, when the startup kind of runs its course and gets acquired or whatever gets big and turns into a corporate, uh, if those early employees that were a part of building the startup are now, you know, dozens of them are all out, like, you know, the PayPal mafia is a great example. We talked about Peter Thiel earlier and uh, all those early people at PayPal, like, how many of them are all, you know, there's a whole billionaires club that came out of PayPal. And, you know, you mentioned LinkedIn at Microsoft, uh, that, you know, Reed Hoffman came out of the PayPal mafia, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, like all these epic people, uh, you know, came out of PayPal. And that just speaks to like how entrepreneurial and, and uh, you know, the caliber of talent that was there in those early days. And I think the same absolutely can be said about Bob and what he did with uh, that early crew at RJ metrics. 1000%. Cause
0: I haven't done that. Right. Like, like he has, like he's created like so many other things that have come off of the thing that he built. Um, at a scale that I think is just really to be commended. So let's make sure we give that guy his flowers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's let's uh, let's close out here on some uh, maybe some predictions or uh, you know we talked about like the content generation side of AI. We talked about the you know what's going to happen with the search landscape. Uh, you know, everyone's talking about AI these days. I think there's a you know hype cycle around it, but I also think it's like deserve, I think it's a well deserved hype cycle. It's not you know. not the metaverse or or anything like that so (laughs) what are some predictions and how let's riff on this a little bit how how might uh ai impact search and digital marketing uh in the years ahead maybe we can like think you know one or two years ahead and then maybe like a long you know kind of like a long-term 10-year or you know 15-year
0: uh horizon i don't know if i see good things brian like i um honestly man like i think people are gonna lose their fucking jobs and I, and everybody says like oh it's gonna find a new way to create value and you're like yeah and i'm in it so i i'm i'm close i'm not like one of these like people i'm off of it and i'm like oh jobs i'm like no i'm in it and i'm like i think that it's disingenuous to tell people so now the new phrase is you know it's the version of guns don't kill people people kill people kind of thing you know and so in AI, what I'm hearing over and over again is, AI doesn't take away jobs. People good at AI take away jobs. And you're like, well, if you got laid off because of AI, you don't give a fuck, right? You're like, I don't have a job. I can't economically provide for my family. So I, it, that's, that's my biggest concern, like um, is, so if there's a marketplace, also, I think we're going to get more companies, I think we're going to get more concentration of power and wealth, which I think is a bad thing. Um, because what happens, right, is let's say you need 2,000 companies to service the universe of people who need SEO services. Well, as people start adopting AI, and who's got the most money to invest in AI? I think companies probably do. they got the most bank, right? So therefore, they're able to invest more. They have investors. They can lose money. They can raise capital in ways that smaller businesses can. not All of a sudden, if they're like, wait, we have figured it out. How to do so much more of your job that we are now going to go down market and now you're going to displace this group of agencies. And then this group of agencies like, well, we started doing some AI because we had some extra scratch. So we went down market and now you're getting displaced. And then I feel like um, I feel like that that's a concern of mine to be real. It's like, well, what happens to people who are at the bottom trying to come up? I've always engineered my company to be one that works with people in the community. And You know, I started hearing myself be like, for years I've been like, "Yo, get an entry level job at a tech firm, like get a job writing that basic content to start. Get a job learning SQL, like to just be like somebody's like SQL person. Like, I'm the intern. I'm going to answer your questions if you can't figure out how to run the SQL query. I don't need that person here anymore. So my real concern is for marginalized groups. For so long we've been saying technology is a way to get into a world where you can make some real money and get out of poverty and get out of where you are. And I think that, but it starts with the entry level and then they prove themselves and can work themselves up into a a stronger role. I don't know, I'm like, where are people gonna get a chance to prove themselves if so much of the work that they started off gets automated? So it's not just that people are gonna lose their jobs. I think it's the people that have been told for years. It's like, you know, who's left holding the bag right now on student loan debt? Black people who were told this is the way to economic success, you have to get a degree. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I, I gotta go get a degree. So I'm gonna take out these loans. And then all of a sudden they get out of school and it's like, oh, that degree is not gonna get you a job doing entry-level coding. Like People have just automated that. Or medical billing and coding, like, which is a good job for somebody trying to come up and provide for their families. That job doesn't exist anymore. We got AI to do all that, right? It's like, well, that person, that's how they got into the middle class. Then that's how they create economic value. Now it doesn't mean that they're not going to have a job. It just means that they're going to fucking go work for Amazon and take my boxes and bring them to my house on Thursdays. Well, what's the what's the trajectory for that career path?
1: How do, how do you if if there's no um, there's no entro, entry level like how do we build the next generation of engineers? Like they have to come from somewhere. They have to start somewhere.
0: They got to start somewhere, right? And I don't know that answer yet, Brian. Um, because it's not going to be in your economic best interests to hire an entry-level SQL person. Like right now, like I used to spend time asking all kinds of people at Seer, oh, how do I do this in SQL? Because I learned enough. I spent six months, went to community college in Philadelphia, like learned like how to do SQL so I could self-start a little bit. Now I don't need to do that at all. I literally don't need to ask those people that I used to ask how to write this thing in SQL. And I don't have to waste their time being like, can you explain this to me for the fifth time? I'm really trying to learn it right? Like, well, that doesn't exist anymore. I just go to chat GPT. I ask it. I ask it to tell me why. I ask it to write me three quiz questions, and then I learn it on my own. What happens to the person that we used to hire as an entry-level SQL person that used to sit here? It doesn't make economic sense for me to hire that person and have them do manual tasks. So what I hope is that we see a world where government or somebody is like, we will help offset the cost for you to hire an entry-level person because somewhere you're going to need Higher level people, where are they going to come from if they didn't learn the basics?
1: So I'm interested. <laughs> I'm I'm like my brain's spinning on this conver- conversation a little bit. I'm, and I'm thinking like, all right, so uh, you know, there's this part of it. There's like the jobs piece, and you know, and there's there's a there's a macroeconomic piece of it. And the first thing I'm thinking of is like, all right, so if this is the case, if we're like, if companies are just so much more efficient and don't need as many people. Then what happens? Are those companies just like squeezing out way more margin or do, does the market compress the cost of those services now? Like the market maybe values those services less. And, uh, and then what happens to the GDP? Like, are we like compressing? You're shaking your head. No. What what are your thoughts?
0: Bro. I got a friend that works in oil and gas. And he said this to me and I was like, Oh shit, I'm going to start tracking this. He's like, watch how quickly when OPEC changes the cost of a barrel of oil, literally our prices jump up immediately because we got to cover the cost of the additional cost. He's like, but when OPEC drops the the cost of a barrel of oil, we take six months to bring the pricing down. Hmm. And that's my yield. And that's where I make my money, right? So imagine a world where everything goes to the top. Now everybody's working for some version of some big conglomerate. This is how so they, they all optimize. play chicken
1: though. Like the the all the companies play chicken to see who's going to lower the price first.
0: So And, and then, uh, also and then once, kind of-
1: once they start lowering, then the other ones start losing market share. So they have to lower. So the market does work itself out, but the market Over- takes time to work itself out on price reductions, but obviously increases instantly.
0: Bingo. So yes, the market will come down and normalize, but they're all going to kind of collude to do it. And when, all the middle guys and the smaller guys are disrupted out and they had to sell their businesses or just destroy them and then go work for the bigger companies. Now, if you've only got three or four bigger companies, it's a lot easier to collude and stretch the customer out longer before they see the economic value of that. I went to school to be an economics teacher. So this is where I really start to like, be like, yes, like this is what happens. So now you've got just this long runway because you've got oligopolies, you've got like, you know, two or three or four major companies so they can play these fucking games with the society and whatnot. And it's harder to collude with 2000 people because a couple of people are going to go rogue and flip the bird to the establishment and be like, we're going to drop our prices immediately. Like we're going to show the world, boom. But then once they're all gone because they couldn't economically survive. And they all just went and worked for the big company where now they're just you know doing their jobs. They're not making those financial decisions anymore. Somebody at the financial side is making those decisions and they go, oh my God. Like if we just all kind of not collude because that's against the law, but if we kind of over drinks, no documentation, talk about these things. Can I get four of my largest competitors that own 80% of the market to collude over dinner? Yeah, Could I fly in 2000 people and assume none of them are gonna go and tell the press? No. So yeah, I'm. I, 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 that concerns me because I'm always about technology lifting people up and I'm going, where is that going to come from? I think the average person today is fine, but like three or four or five years from now, my average person today that is above what ChatGPT can do had to learn by doing things ChatGPT can do today. So where are they gonna come from to your earlier question? And that's a question that I'm not incentivized as a business nor am I big enough as a business to be able to go, I'm going to hire 10 people that can do a job that could have been done by ChatGPT because I want to be training my future people. Where's that going to come from? Who has that kind of economic clout? Comcast, Amazon, these big companies. So then it just becomes more of a up shit. Like we're, they're going to last longer. They got the money to do it. They will do it at a level that's like, we're supposed to do it for like, uh, you know, ESG. But like, is it really in their ethos? Like, no, right? So we'll see, man. We'll see. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting ride. Um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting
1: ride. Yeah, there's so much there. Um, I was just listening to the Acquired podcast. I don't know if you've ever uh, checked that out, but uh, it's uh, super I think interesting. I know that
0: dude.
1: Yeah, and the they, that had a, they, had a, they had an episode on Lockheed Martin, the history of Lockheed Martin. And uh, there was one point in the story where I guess I, I don't remember the timetable. I want to say it was in like maybe the 70s or something after, you know, kind of there was a lot of uh, a lot of like public uh disdain for the the military industrial complex and you know people wanted to you know do less war spend less on war and uh, so the u.s government was starting to ramp down war spending quite drastically and some like s- super senior white house official called a dinner with all of the ceos of all the defense contractors and basically at that dinner they called it the last supper is what they've referred to that dinner ever since and uh basically the the white house official said, all right, uh, you know, we're about to drastically ramp down defense spending. He's like, I don't care how you guys do it, but you have to figure out how to merge, uh, you know, like cut in half the number of you. And, uh, and basically, like, we don't want to lose our innovative edge, we need to, we need to keep innovating and making advanced war technology, but we don't have enough money to go around and feed all these mouths. So you guys have to, like, reduce the number of you.
0: That sounds like a really interesting, because, you know, sometimes all this acquisition Crap! I mean, if I'm being honest with you, it's like it's just a bunch of tech bros. I'm not really interested in being like those motherfuckers. <laughs> so usually, I just avoid, you know. Dude, Acquired kind of
1: com is like one of the most uh, underrated podcasts. It's uh, it's amazing, man. It, they they Dude. they basically they 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 spend uh, like once a month they'll do a deep dive into a company, and just the two the two hosts they'll just like research everything about that company, about its history and its story, and then they'll they'll just like spend four hours like riffing on it.
0: Oh, okay, cool. So I just, I just subscribed. So like, uh, we'll see. So thanks for that tip.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool, man. So, um, but when you said like the colluding thing, that just kind of made me think of like how, you know, these these kind of, uh, these meetings can happen where there's like, you know, decision, you know, there's uh, sort of like uh, cooperations that have big impact in the real world.
0: They do, they really do. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. And I don't mean to be doom and gloom on that, um, I think if you're, I think it's a tremendous opportunity if you're in it today. I'm more worried about you know five years from now, ten years from now. If like, you know, if it used to take you X number of people to write content, X number of pieces of content, and now it takes you one plus AI. Like, well, what's going to happen to those nine people, right? And I think what'll happen but is also, you'll see more like, people go into other jobs. Like to the same which is point fun. though,
1: the market will eventually work itself out. Like if it actually, uh, like you know, companies that just reduce their headcount by half. They're, you know, and they keep trying to charge the same rates and just like fatten their margin. Eventually, someone else is going to come in and do it for less. So, the market, the market, I think, will work itself I out. I completely but they-
0: disagree with that, though, because like the market works itself out for who? Not people that look like me. Right. Like, that's my concern. Is it's like Sierra has always been founded on like, we're going to bring people up in our community. I wanted to get bigger so that I can bring up more people. Most companies want to get bigger so they can be on the Acquired podcast, right? And they can tell their story and all that shit. So that's my big concern is it's like for whom? Like, you know, I'm working with organizations that are taking guys coming out of the prison fucking system and turning them into iOS developers. Changes the course of their entire lives. What happens when fewer of those people are needed? Then what's left for them, right? But yeah, for you and me and anybody at Sear, they're going to be fine,
1: right? but it's, it's the, the people- next, the next generation.
0: It's, the, yeah. it's not just the next generation, it's the people who I've been talking to at community colleges for years being like, learn SQL. I've been telling them, go learn SQL, go learn SQL, because you're gonna be able to unlock information inside of databases that executives like me wish we had, but don't have. Well, now I'm writing my own SQL. So what happens to them, right? Like my SQL developers are like, this GPT thing is great. I can do more work. And I'm like, of course. So they're not getting let go, right? but it's the people that are coming up that had to do those jobs and it's a way for people black brown people etc to kind of jump up into a different stratosphere like it's like it's like the young world.
1: adults at hopeworks or like i was just over at coded by kids the other day and and uh meeting with a lot of the this the students over there and you know kind of reviewing some of their pitches so it's it's like those those folks like the next generation who hasn't entered the workforce yet and even like you know i i, I think there's even been a disservice pre-AI or not pre-AI because AI has been around for a while, but like pre this like AI hype cycle that we saw a lot late last year uh, with COVID where, you know, the same thing happened when all these tech companies and, you know, white collar companies went remote. Uh, those, those like interns and those, you know, super green, young work, you know, new workers entering the workforce didn't get the same level of uh, mentorship or, you uh, you know like just rubbing elbows with the senior folks like the grey beards you know the the guys and gals that have been in the industry for a long time ru- rubbing rubbing shoulders with those you know rubbing elbows with those people at lunch or you know uh just in the office i think uh has a uh an impact but it's also interesting too because like my company we've been remote for over a decade so uh i think a remote first culture you can plan for that and you know figure out how to make that happen but a culture that has always been co-located that suddenly went remote there's you know there's like a real disservice done to those early uh young workers
0: it is you know when we went um we went we started working um hybrid and remote probably like six years ago you know so we were ready for the transition um but we used to fly people into headquarters and they would stay here for a week. We had apartments and stuff. They could just stay at, right? So we just had a constant flow of people coming in and getting that dosage. So even we're trying to figure that out. Like, how do you disseminate that information and, and that sentiment? Like this conversation that we're having, right? If there were 10 people in the office, they would be hearing things. Same 10 people. I'm like, oh, here's a link to this podcast. Oh, I didn't get to it. I didn't do this, right? All right, So like, there's just things that happen um, kind of naturally. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my big concern. And I'm glad to have you as somebody who's out there working with youth in this capacity, because I think the larger I think the larger organizations, they throw their money at it, but they're not really like rolling up their sleeves and in, in the trenches to be like, wait, as we automate processes and whatnot, how are we trying to bring these people along with us so that they have the same amount of opportunity? So that's that's for another day, but you know, I think there's gonna be a few of us who are already out there with Coded by Kids, with HopeWorks, trying to do things um, locally like, we got to figure out how we can pull our resources together because I don't see enough people yet really working on this problem. So it's an opportunity, right? Just like any other entrepreneur. It's an opportunity for us to be like, this is going to happen to these folks. And if we don't show up to do something about it, then who is like, I'm not going to wait for my, you know, for my baby daddy Comcast to figure it out. Like we can do stuff even at a small level. So I'm looking forward to working with you on that, Bri, for real. When we got together at Comcast, um, I was like, oh, Oh, this dude is like about that, right? So let's actually like figure out ways we can work together and help those kids for sure, man.
1: Cool, yeah. And uh, maybe um, I'm just thinking there's so much more that we uh, we're wrapping up here, but there's so much more we we could cover. Uh, maybe we can do a recap, uh, a, a redo, or a, a second uh, podcast episode on the ethics of AI and the future of the workforce and the impact on the workforce. And maybe we can <laughs> even get a few folks on, you know, Be fun. Uh, if you're interested, and have a few folks kind of like discuss and and debate the topic a little bit.
0: It's fun. So I'll leave you with this, because I'm going to record this today. I'm going to put in my footer, how I use AI and where I use it. And the three places are um, communication, ideation, and execution. And I'm going to have something so that people always know where my boundaries are with AI, because otherwise you don't know. And one of our corporate values is transparency. So I'm like, I'm going to lead by being like, look, I think every person at some point is going to need their own personal statement that you can link out to that's like, here's how, I, here's how AI might have affected this correspondence, right? Here's my borders, here's my lines, et cetera. So um, I'm gonna launch that sometime today. Uh, cool. So you'll be able to see I'll it. Keep an eye out for it.
1: All right, what do you I, wanna bro- plug before we hop off? Anything you wanna, you know, I, you do the, the work with uh, rehabilitating prisoners in the workforce. I know you've got the, uh, the sleep out that you do in Philly. Is there anything you wanna plug uh, from a, uh, a community aspect?
0: No, I'm the only thing I'm going to plug is just like challenge yourself to be good to forgotten people. And I think that'll take you broader than anything that I'm specifically working on. Um, Find ways to help people. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you're in a pretty decent position. Take that position and that solid ground you got under yourself to reach a hand back and try to bring somebody else up so they can have the same comforts that we have. That's my plug.
1: Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on.
0: You got it, brother. Have a good one.